me invite you to take your Bibles this morning, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I think uh, often we can see in the nature of debate and argument that sometimes uh, it can lead to overstatement or uh, and or drawing conclusions uh, that are excessive, right? So, so you're having a, a debate about an idea. Sometimes one part of the debate can overstate their case in a way that uh, misrepresents it, or sometimes people can draw a conclusion that's excessive. Right? You, can, you could go into a ditch on either side. And I think what the Apostle Paul recognizes as making a very strong case against the kind of false wisdom that was at Corinth that they might draw a conclusion that goes too far, that Paul's actually against wisdom. And he's not against wisdom. He's against a false kind of wisdom that was circulating at Corinth. And he certainly did not want to argue in a way that suggested that the problem uh, that, that was meeting rejection with the message of the cross was in the message itself. And he, he, he recognizes that people are going to consider the message of the cross foolishness or a stumbling block, and he's trying to make sure they know that that's actually not a problem with the message. And so he wants to guard against those things. And so as he finishes describing his ministry at Corinth, he wants to help clarify for them those issues. Let's begin reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and I'm going to Begin in verse 6 and and work our way down through the chapter. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those that love him, those who love him. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of this of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ." For our purposes this morning, we're actually just going to be looking at verses 6 through 13, but because of the relationship to verses 14 through 16, I want to read through there because I think it helped us understand things that are in verses 6 
through 13. And what I want to do is, as we look at this passage, is understand that Paul's uh, communicating a basic important truth that the cross, the message of the cross, the gospel, is actually true wisdom. Right? It is not opposed to wisdom per se. It is actually true wisdom that has been revealed by the Spirit and is received or accepted by those who are spiritual. And so as he walks through it, what we're going to do is I'm going to give you some pegs, hopefully to hang on, hang on as you think through it. In the first part of verse six, he gives two clarifications, right? Helps us understand what he's talking about. Notice he says, yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. So the, the immediately the corrective he wants to have against, I didn't come to you in wisdom. I didn't come with superiority of wisdom. He doesn't want them to act as if he's he's disregarding wisdom entirely. So his first clarification is to say that rejecting false wisdom is not rejecting wisdom entirely. Notice the first part of verse six. Yet we do speak wisdom, right? So there is a wisdom that he's going to show them that actually is different than the world's wisdom. It's different than the kind of worldly wisdom that is trying to change the message of the cross to something that's more acceptable to the world, all right? So don't swing the pendulum, right? Well, we're against false wisdom. Don't swing it all the way across to we're against wisdom. No, it, it is we're against false wisdom. We are going to speak true wisdom that comes from God. There is a wisdom that God has given to us. Look at the second uh, clarification found in the words among the mature. All right, and here's what I'd suggest he's helping us see that receiving wisdom isn't merely an intellectual process. And that's a part of the problem working through uh, this whole section. That's why I read down into verses 14 through 16. I almost read all the way into chapter three because he's still carrying the same thought that there's wisdom, but the natural man can't receive that wisdom. And in fact, fleshly Christians struggle with that wisdom too. That's why he says in verse six, we speak this wisdom among the mature. That contrast to mature, look at chapter three and look at verses one and two. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink and not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now, you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. All right, so Paul is is sort of giving us a, a foreshadowing of where he's going when he says, we speak wisdom among the mature. And, and what that helps us see when you see the comparison in chapter three to infants versus mature, and the infancy isn't an intellectual infancy, right? You know, if you and I, if you and I are talking to a, 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 a toddler, a one and a half or two year old, we, we wouldn't be talking to them in sophisticated language like we might be talking to somebody who's, uh, fully educated, right? We'd be going, well, they don't intellectually have the capacity for this, 
But that's not what he's talking about when he talks about infant to mature. It's not intellectual capacity. It's actually tied to their spirituality, right? He says, I couldn't talk to you as to spiritual men, verse one. Why? Because you're living like fleshly people. There's a way of living which prevents them from being able to receive wisdom. So wisdom isn't just an intellectual issue, right? It's not merely that, well, hey, you're smart, so you get this wisdom. Or you have some intellectual insight that gives you an inside path to the wisdom of God. But that something has happened, verse 14, to move you from a natural person to a spiritual person and among those spiritual people that you're actually walking in obedience to God and not acting as if you're just an infant still operating according to fleshly principles, right? Mature is talking about a kind of believer who has a heart for and receptiveness to the wisdom of God. And I think that's really important for us to understand because what seems to be at stake, if you're, if you're following what Paul's saying here, is, is that the people at Corinth who wanted to tinker with the gospel were doing so on intellectual kinds of terms. Hey, the, the Greek philosopher thinks the message of the cross is offensive, so let's come up with some sophisticated way of expressing this that will be more attractive to that Greek intellectual, right? And Paul's going, you're missing the point about wisdom, right? Wisdom isn't an academic achievement. It's actually a heart of humble receptiveness to the truth of God is revealed to us. Maturity is the most important thing, not intellectual capacity, right? It's not, not in any way trying to, uh, to, to uh, speak against intellectual capacity, but to put intellectual capacity in its proper place. I mean, you do realize in this world, there are a lot of smart fools, right? Because smartness and wisdom are not identical that you can have loads of information and knowledge and not have the understanding and wisdom to transfer it into appropriate living, right? And, and what, what we have to see here is that that's because wisdom, wisdom, true wisdom from God always has a connection to God himself. And if you cut off that connection, you build a ceiling that excludes God from the occasion, it might look like wisdom, but it is foolish, right? There's a way that seems right to a person, but the end of it is destruction. And so Paul wants them to think correctly about it. Yes, I'm against false wisdom, but do not draw the conclusion that I'm against wisdom but recognize that you have to have a kind of heart reception to actually receive the wisdom of God. All right, so there's the two clarifications at the beginning of verse six. Now he sets up a contrast in verse six in the second part of it. Notice 
He says, we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, that's why I'm taking the word contrast, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away, but we speak God's wisdom, right? So the, the contrast is established in verse six is that God's wisdom doesn't come from this age or its rulers. Notice it says, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age. So if you're looking to this world for wisdom, that's not the wisdom of God. God's wisdom doesn't come from this age or its rulers. That's not the source of it. It is not found there because uh, persistently, right, when we think world, all right, just real quickly, right, we have the created existence, right? So, so that's the creation. That's not what he's talking about here, right? We have actually world used sometimes of all the people of the world, right? That, that God exhibited his love for the world in giving his son. But then we also have a persistently negative demonstration of the world, which we are not to love, and the course of this world is passing away. Look at the end of verse six, right? It says, who are passing away. So this is that element of the world, which we describe as being in rebellion against God and ultimately under the judgment of God. It's passing away. It, it, will, it will be extinguished at some point. And the one who rules this age and, and energizes it, Ephesians chapter two, is, is the evil one, Satan. So it's the system of this world's thinking, which is in opposition to God and energized by God's enemy. That's not where true wisdom is found. And so we need to recognize that. And the Lord willing, we'll look at that a little more deeply when we look at the end of this chapter. But, but we need to understand that because there's a persistent tendency for, for Christians, I think, committing the Corinthian error to want to harmonize the thinking of the world and the revelation of God in Scripture. Right? That, that we, we think we can integrate them into some unified system of wisdom. And what we don't recognize is that when it comes to the real issues of eternal significance, they are fundamentally opposed to each other. Right? Just, just think about the nature of humanity. Clearly, you don't have to be a believer to be able to give lots of information about how the human body functions, right? You can come up with all kinds of information about the, the facts of human life, but the minute you begin to interpret those, you are bringing your presuppositions into bear. And if your presupposition is that humanity is basically good, and malfunctions because of some kind of genetic defect or some kind of environmental defect, you're essentially offloading responsibility in a way that is going to turn them away from the good news of the gospel, right? Because your interpretation of the data 
is skewed by your rejection of God's perspective on the matter. So the thinking that comes from this world is actually limited by its perspective. It's actually caught inside the bubble of its own temporal nature and captured by the biases of human depravity. And so he says it's not from this age and God's wisdom is also not bound by the limitations of time. What, What we have to have is a perspective which is from outside of and speaks truth to. And and that's why we need revelation from God because we need God's truth to help us understand uh, the true significance of and meaning of the things that we observe. And so Paul contrasts God's wisdom with man's wisdom in that way. And then he moves in verses seven through nine to a, an explanation of the character of God's wisdom, right? And, and I'm just gonna start with the most basic one, right? Verse seven, we speak God's wisdom. So the wisdom that Paul is advocating is divine wisdom. It's God's, All right? And he's gonna unpack all of what that means, but he's clearly putting uh, he's putting these two things in opposition to each other, right? A wisdom which is sourced in this age and in the rulers of this age. We could probably maybe think of it as the influencers, right? In chapter one, he talks, where's the scribe? Where's the philosopher? I mean, he's basically highlighting all of the people who are the thought leaders, of this age. And he's saying, they're not the source of God's wisdom. They're not the source of true wisdom, all right? So against that, he's gonna start by saying, but we have wisdom that has divine source. It's God's wisdom. It's from God. We we have been given this wisdom from God. Notice also in verse seven, he describes it with the words, in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to come. And this is a place where uh, we, we have to wrestle with a difference between the way we use mystery and, and most of the time the New Testament uses it, right? We tend to think of mystery, like a mystery novel or a movie mystery where there's something hidden and people are looking at clues and trying to figure it out. But consistently in the New Testament, mystery is being used not of something which is still hidden, but had been hidden and now is revealed, right? It's used, for instance, in Ephesians chapter two about the mystery that God would include both Jew and Gentile into the one new man. And then it says, which in previous generations was not known, but now has been made known to us by the apostles and prophets. So the mystery is something that has been unveiled and it's described as a mystery. This is God's revelation to us that had been hidden and now has been made known. This element of hidden, notice is at the end of verse seven, something God predestined before the ages. So Here's, here's uh, the, I mean, we're, we have to go basically back to pre-time, right? That's before the ages is before God created everything. 
in eternity past, God had a plan to send his son into the world and to die on the cross to provide salvation. And we see that affirmed a number of times in scripture, uh, not, not the least of which is in Peter's sermon of the day of Pentecost, which he says the, the, the sin of crucifying Christ was according to the predetermined counsel and foreknowledge of God, right? It wasn't an accident that happened. It wasn't Jesus came into the world and planned to set up his kingdom and then, oh, everything went wild and he got crucified. No, it actually was God's eternal plan to do that. That's the part that was a mystery hidden that was predestined and now unveiled. And and I think you can get the significance of what this is. I mean, here's God's eternal plan to reveal his glory in the cross of his son. And they're going, hey, can we tuck that cross thing away a little bit? We need to sort of tamper down this crucifixion stuff because it's really offensive to the to, to people. It's causing a stumbling block to the Jews and it's moronic to the, the Greeks. So let's just sort of like turn that down a little bit, Paul. And Paul's going, this was God's eternal plan. I mean, it was actually the pivotal turning point in all of human history that Jesus, the son of God, would die on the cross to provide salvation and you want us like sort of minimize it, tuck it away? Can't you see how out of, out of balance you are with what the biblical, the biblical message about this is? You can't shy away from the cross. It's God's divine wisdom, which is eternal in its nature. That is it, this idea of God's redemptive plan existed before there was anything. Right, that's what I mean by eternal. Right? It's, it predates the establishment of time and was effected in time to have eternal significance. Right? It's the centerpiece of it. And, and we need to step outside of our tendency to think only in the immediate context of time as to what's the most prudent or effective or practical, right? We tend to adopt and think about things that are immediate solutions without thinking about the roots of those ideas or the ramifications of them. We need to have God's perspective, the cross, is rooted in an eternal plan and is actually what God uses to accomplish his purposes. It is, it is the centerpiece of it and it's God's eternal wisdom. Now look at verses eight and nine because there's a third uh, component of this character and that is its spiritual wisdom. Let me read those verses again then help you understand why I've used that word, all right? The wisdom... Uh, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So I, I'm using the word spiritual. I'm sort of borrowing it from verse 14 and 15. Uh, and that is the natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they cannot, they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things. All right, so, so when he says, 
the rulers of this age, uh, they didn't understand it because if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. We need to, we, this is gonna sound weird. I just realized it was coming out, but we need to understand the word understood in light of verses 14 and 15. All right, so we could, we could have, uh, we could have the idea of understood as just being, again, intellectual understanding or comprehension. Right? It is, it is just at the level of like, can you follow the structure of a sentence and understand what it means? But the kind of understanding that this passage is talking about is, is a, if I could say it that way, it's a step past that to the embrace and acceptance of it. Right? So just think about the gospels. Um, how, how could the rulers of the age in which Jesus walked on the earth, how could they see the things that he did have to even recognize that some incredible thing had been done, yet reject Jesus. I mean, how, how is it that Jesus stands at a tomb of a man named Lazarus and says, come forth, and someone who's been dead for four days walks out of his grave, and they go, obviously he's done some great thing, so let's kill him and Lazarus. Right? That's what I mean by they, they understood what happened in terms of the details and facts of it. And in fact, they had some level of understanding about what that implies, and that's what they rejected. Because in their hearts, the message of Jesus was unacceptable, right? They counted it, here's the language of verse 14, they counted it to be foolishness. You're telling me that I'm a sinner who needs to repent? I'm more righteous than you. You're telling me that the kingdom of God is not what I have decided it is? I know the Bible better than you, right? Their stance was one of arrogant rejection of the truth of Jesus that was being presented to them. And they couldn't bend their knee to it, so they counted it as foolishness, right? That's, that's the problem. It is that there is something in the human heart slash mind, right? Because we're talking about the interior uh, of, of humans, right? Don't think, don't think brain is broken. Think mind is in rebellion. We're not talking about mental incompetence. We're talking about incorrigibility. Right? They will not bow the knee to the truth of God because the implications of that truth actually pronounce condemnation on them. If, if Jesus is who he claimed to be and did what the Bible says he did, 
then the conclusion of that is that we are sinners under condemnation from God in desperate need of someone to save us because we cannot save ourselves. And the pagan who rejects God rejects that, but so does the self-righteous religious person. The self-righteous religious person goes, wee, wee, time out here. I've done nothing worthy of condemnation. I've done nothing so bad that I can't actually work it off through works of righteousness or acts of penance or participation in some religious ritual that will make me acceptable to God. I do not accept what you're saying. Right? That's the kind of unbelief that's there. That's the impact of sin on the human heart and mind. They, they saw and knew, but they did not perceive and understand because they did not want to submit to the truth. And it's not just the life of Jesus. I mean, I, I could actually, I'd encourage you to come on Wednesday nights as Pastor Ben is unpacking the open part, opening parts of Genesis. But the same thing is true in our day when people will mock and sneer at the belief in creationism. When in fact, if they trace out the logical conclusions of their own position, they are essentially, in reality, accepting the premise that nothing produced something. Right? Because nothing, that's evolution, all starts with nothing. And all of a sudden, it became something. Right? So you could trace it all the way back and go, there was nothing, and then something came into existence. Or you can trace it all the way back and go, there was nothing but God, and God spoke it into existence. But you can stand over here and act all intellectually highbrow, but at the end of the day, you get back to nothing. There had to have been a time when nothing that we saw existed or else you have some kind of eternal matter. And you're going to mock me believing in an eternal God. I mean, it, it, it's the same kind of steadfast defiance against reality as defined by God. And you can trace it all through the process, right? It's all chaos and coincidence determined by a process that ultimately leaves humans either the subject, right, of uh, impersonal fate or pure chemical reactions inside you for which you have no responsibility and no control. And you have nothing of the ground of morality on which they will stake we have to live. But they have no basis for it. But it can come across in an unbelieving worldview as intelligence, wisdom. But in fact, it isn't because it rejects the only true wisdom that comes from God. 
and, and stands apart from us and reveals it to us, right? And, and that's what he's beginning to draw out in verse nine, that the fact is that, and, and it serves sort of as a hinge verse where Paul pulls together, I think, some statements from the Old Testament and forges them into this point about the fact that the world and its rulers cannot understand the wisdom of God, right? The things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, which have not entered into the heart of mind. All of that is, here's why humans don't accept it. Because it has, it doesn't come into the human heart in a way that feeds the response of rebellion of the heart. But here's what God has done in verse nine. He's prepared something for those who love him. He has in fact provided a salvation for those who love him. And that's found in the cross and in Christ, right? That is not, uh, I'll just set it in terms of, you know, a doctrinal framework we'd understand. Right, basically verse nine is saying, apart from the revelation of God, someone will not come to this conclusion. Right, it needs to be revealed by God in the same sense that for instance, when Jesus asked the apostles who he was, the disciples, Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and what did, what did the, Jesus say? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Right? God has given to you the understanding that you need to have of who I am. You wouldn't have come to it. Listen to the verse, words of verse 9. It wouldn't have come via your eye has seen or what your ear has heard. It's not something that emerged in your heart. It actually is something that God has made known to you. Because look at verse 10. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. And that leads us to our fourth sort of keyword. If you've been trying to keep track, it's the clarification, contrast, and character. Now it's the communication of God's wisdom. I know some of you be just frustrated all afternoon because I said four things. So there they are, all right? The communication of God's wisdom. First of all, in verses 10 and 11, it's made possible by the Spirit. God revealed his wisdom through the Spirit. For God, for to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. And the Spirit is the one who knows the mind of God. And because he is God, therefore can be the authoritative revealer. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of man except the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. So, so here's the, the beginning of the answer for Paul as to where this wisdom comes from. It comes from God through the Spirit. All right, that's the, the, the assertion at the beginning of verse 10. And then he backs it up in the second part of verse 10 and 11 by saying, because the Spirit knows everything that's in the mind of God. Right? I mean, when someone wants to know what's in your heart, the only person that can really know that is the Spirit of the person. And the Spirit knows everything that's in the mind of God because he's God. So it's possible for us to have the mind of God revealed to us because the Spirit knows the mind of God. 
and he has revealed it. He's given to us that mind. That's why he comes back at the end of verse 16 and says, but we have the mind of Christ. This, is, this has been given to us by the Spirit. Notice verse 12, because I think what he's saying here is that this is made of, this communication of God's wisdom is made available through the apostles. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Now here's a little, little bit of a technical argument, all right? So look at the first verse of chapter two. And when I came to you, I did not come with superiority of speech. Notice the first verse of chapter three. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh. So here's the point. In the verses before this, one through five, and the verses immediately after it, Paul uses the first person singular. I did this, I'm doing this. But in our unit, the passage we're talking about, 6 through 13, he uses the first person plural. We speak, God revealed this to us. And he's talking, therefore, about not just himself, but I think including those who were the official messengers of God's wisdom. The Spirit gave it to him. And I think the way for us to understand what he's doing here is to think back to the Gospels. For instance, the Gospel of John. When Jesus began to prepare his disciples for his departure, he said, I'm gonna send the Spirit and he will teach you everything to say. Right? So the, the apostles were given a special promise from God of the Spirit's ministry. Uh, and I think the part that's restricted to the apostles is, for instance, it says, he will bring to your remembrance everything that I taught you and did. Right? You and I were never present for any of those things. So there's an aspect of the Spirit's ministry which was restricted to those who actually had been with Jesus and had seen his works and had taught him, and they were gonna be the official witnesses to that by the Spirit's help and enablement. That's what he's talking about, I think, in verses six through 13, particularly in 10 through 13, and it finds its sort of head in verse 12. It says, we have received this. Right, the Spirit gave this message to us in these words so that we could pass them on to you. And that, that leads us into verse 13. So the communication of God's wisdom is made possible by the Spirit, verses 10 and 11, made available through the apostles, verse 12, and made accessible through the scriptures in verse 13. Which things... We also speak not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. All right, so that last part is you can, if you have a New American Standard, you can see spiritual thoughts is in italics and words is in italics. And that's because they have a, a habit, a, a, a translation style, which is debatable right, of taking words that aren't in the Greek language and putting another word in to try and help you understand what's going on. So, so again, not, I don't want to get too technical with it, but really there's just three words in the Greek that are there. It's, uh, and this is really brutal, literal, spiritual, spiritual, and then the word interpreting or translating, combining. 
So, so people have to read it and go, so what's the first spiritual and what's the second spiritual? That's why we have a lot of different translations probably represented in this room. Some will have spiritual truths to spiritual people. Right? Anybody have a translation that goes like that? Probably if you have an ESV, you do, all right? Um, so ESV, the Christian Standard Bible, the New English Translation Net, they tend to take the first spiritual as either things or truths and the second one as people. So spiritual things or truths to spiritual people. That's one major way to take it. The other one is the way the New American Standard takes it, the NIV takes it, uh, and that is it's taking spiritual truths and connecting them to spiritual words, right? So, so here's, I mean, obviously there are bright people that have this debate. Here's why I would take it the way the NASB and NIV do. And it's because, look at the first part of the verse, which things we also speak in words taught, not taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit. So he's already talked about words, right? So he's going, so we take spiritual truths and translate them or communicate them in spiritual words. Those words were taught by the wisdom of the Spirit. He's talking about the communication of the truth. He's talking about the fact that we have wisdom from God by the Spirit through the apostles into words. Right? In other words, he's saying something very similar to what the apostle Peter says about the writings of Paul. Listen to what 2 Peter 3.15, Peter says, he calls Paul's writings according to the wisdom given him. That's what Paul's talking about here. He has wisdom from God that has been turned into words from God. It's another way of saying what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1 about inspiration. Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The, the process of us having revealed wisdom in the word of God has gone from the mind of God by the Spirit of God into the apostles and through the apostles into the words which they have left us, right? We have the revelation of God's wisdom when they took spiritual truth or thoughts and joined them to spiritual words so that we have wisdom from God. We have it revealed to us. We can look at the wisdom of God that centers on Christ and all that God's doing to bring everything together under Christ. This is the wisdom we have. So it's not, it's not a fuzzy feeling impression, right? Well, it just sort of seems to me like, but that we actually are looking outside of ourselves to the revelation of God about what he's done through Christ to reconcile the world to himself. A, a wisdom that is found in Christ because Paul says in chapter one, and this is why he's not against wisdom, he says that actually for those who are the called, it is the wisdom of God. 
And then he says just a few verses later, Christ who has been made to us wisdom. Right? So the, the answer of a Christian to the scoffing of the world around us who wants to reject the sort of primitive nature of, of Christianity and, and think it's so unenlightened and so subject to the, the, the excesses of the first century or whatever is to say, you're completely misunderstanding what we're talking about, right? When we approach the scriptures, it's not the collection of mankind's thinking about God. It's actually the revelation of God's wisdom to man. Its source didn't spring from us. It actually came from God. The spirit of God moved people to write the word of God. So that what we have, in fact, is the word of God. And that's why Paul says to the Thessalonians, he was confident of who they were because when he spoke to them the word of God, they received it as it was indeed God's word. That we accept the revelation of God is the evidence of a heart that has come to see that God is the only one who understands things perfectly, has spoken about them truly, and we respond to them in humble acceptance. We receive the truth of God. We acknowledge our dependence on him and therefore yield to him in it. So as we think about a passage like this, I think it should it should confront potentially the wrong tendencies that we have to think that knowledge or sophistication equals maturity. And there's sort of a, I mean, there's a way this works, right? You've seen it happen um, in good and bad context, right? Someone thinks that they've reached a pinnacle of enlightenment because they have some sophistication or some, unique understanding of things, and then you state a simple truth from God's word, and they look at you like you're a, you know, a dunce. Right? They don't engage the argument. They just sort of think, well, yeah, nobody really believes that. Right? They want to actually, they actually want to try to shame you into not accepting the truth revealed in scripture. And, and the Corinthian error was to play right into that. Right? It was actually to accept the embarrassment and try to hide it so that they could be accepted by people who rejected the truth of God. And, and I think we've got to recognize the fundamental flaw of playing that game on the terms of unbelief, right? Because go back 50 years ago, and it might be like, well, you know, it's sort of like scandalous to think that people could deny the things that have been accepted by everybody for so long, but now they've ascended to some level of enlightenment so they can look at it and look down their nose at those things. And people are like, well, maybe, maybe we need to renegotiate. 
And, and that renegotiation of a biblical worldview didn't result in bringing anybody closer to the scripture. It actually, as the world kept stepping farther and farther away, professing Christendom just keeps chasing after it. Because, I mean, who, who would have thought, right? I mean, some of you wouldn't have thought anything because you wouldn't have been around. But, I mean, who would have thought in 1970 that you would have people who claim to love the Lord and honor the word standing up and explaining moral things as if God didn't create the world. Explaining, explaining a worldview in framework that has completely been overrun with anti-biblical assumptions. Right? Who would have thought that? I don't think anybody in 1970 would have. I don't think anybody who started down the path of accommodation to unbelief was thinking that they would actually end up going all the way down the hill. I think they thought they could start halfway down the hill and they'd have the strength to not go any farther or that they would be so persuasive with their new way of arguing that they would actually get people to come back up the hill. But what they didn't realize is the depth of human depravity and the danger of wanting to be pleasing to people. Because those are, that, that is a toxic combination. People who fundamentally reject the wisdom of God becoming the Lord over people who claim to accept it because we chase after their acceptance. We want them to accept us, think we're respectable, think we're, we're whatever. And Paul says, listen, that's, that's just fundamentally missing the point of what's going on. We have been told the truth of God from God himself by the work of his spirit to make known this wisdom. It is the centerpiece of God's eternal plan to provide redemption. The maker of heaven and earth has moved to provide salvation in his son. Do not mute or obscure that. Don't cater to the unbelief of people thinking that that actually would rescue them from unbelief. The antidote to their unbelief is to proclaim the truth and trust the Spirit to open the eyes of understanding. We cannot make the mistake of thinking that the human mind operates with some kind of intellectual neutrality about the things of God, because it does not. We cannot think that trying to make the gospel more palatable to people who reject its basic truths is effective. It's like, like turning the gospel into a placebo, robbing it of any healthy delivery of medicine in order to make it more acceptable to the person taking it. All you'll do is leave them subject to the disease that you're actually supposedly offering a cure for. 
The gospel will not change the human heart if it's been robbed of its power. And its power is in the cross. Because there the love of God and the holiness of God are joined in expression because God himself in the person of his son stepped into our humanity so that we could be rescued from wrath. If we rob the cross of that, we've robbed it of its saving power. So we should humbly embrace this truth and boldly declare it and confidently live in this world with the recognition that God has prepared something far better for those who love him. So our hopes aren't in this world. They're in the wisdom of God displayed at the cross. Let's pray. Father, please help us to die to the kind of pride that longs to be accepted by those who reject you. Strengthen our loyalty to Christ. Help us to take our stand with him at the foot of the cross and never turn our back on it because it is there that we see your wisdom and love and your power, your mercy and grace available to any sinner who will confess their sin and call on the name of Christ. Lord, please help us to see how important it is not to get drawn away from that, either personally or congregationally, for ourselves or for our witness. Help us to make much of Christ and make much of his cross, knowing that therein is your power manifest in the glory of your Son. May he be honored today. May our lives be controlled by this wisdom that has come from you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.